listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. I was thinking this morning about my mom and just how blessed I am to still have her in my life. And like Caleb just prayed, I know that not everybody um, is probably in the same place that I am. Um, And even this morning during the time of confession, just a few minutes ago, I was just confessing the sin of blaming my parents for what are really my mess ups. Like I want to shift blame somewhere. It's not my fault that I'm far from God. It's it's not my fault that I sin. It's not my fault that I'm a control freak. It's not my fault that I have struggles. It's got to be somebody else's. And so often for me, I want to look to and blame my parents. But also, I had to stop and think this morning, man, there are many more, even here in this body, who would have loved to have grown up in in the house that I grew up in. My mom has been such a blessing to me. I wrote down a couple of things that I'm especially thankful for, um, mostly thankful for. How's that? Uh, one is that if you know my mom at all, you know that she's a perfectionist. She's an Enneagram type one with a, with a one wing and like a, just everything's a one. Like she's just, everything's got to be in order. And not just in her life, but in everybody's life. And she's going to listen to this later. And so if you want some more stories, details, facts, or whatever, take me out to lunch. I'll share those with you. Uh, but she's the kind of person if she sees, my brother told me last night, he told me that uh, this past week, she found some errors on a church website, not our church, some other church, not even in this town. She was looking at the history on the church's website, and she decides to email the church and correct their errors. She's just that kind of person. She wants everything to be in order. She's that type of perfectionist. One time she was watching the news, and there was a, a typo on the screen. Most people Normal people would say, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect, you know. Um, But no, she decides to call the news station or emails them or something and says, hey, just so you know, this was wrong. And they're like, thank you so much. We we really appreciate. She's just that kind of person. She's also a clean freak that goes in with that perfectionistic mentality. But that's just who she is. And I've I've grown to love that about her because she wants everything to be right. Uh, For years, I've, I've played music. And, um, and that's, I have a heart for music. Both, both my parents are uh, very musical. We grew up in a very musical home. And so one of the things I love about my mom is the fact that I've, I've spent more time on stage with her than anybody else playing music. And from the time that I was young, I played trumpet uh, starting at seven years old. I took lessons and uh, I played both services Sunday morning you know, youth choir practice on Sunday night, the Sunday night service, Wednesday night, you know, choir practice. Like I was just always, and she was sitting there playing piano. And so I was usually looking over her shoulder, uh, playing trumpet, usually transposing in my head because trumpet's a B-flat instrument. And so, and I was turning pages and then later in high school, I picked up the bass and we just played so much music together. And I had that memory of my mom, of my mom and it's just so sweet. Uh, she is one of the most committed people to a church that you will ever meet. meet. Again, part of that's that perfectionistic, like I want to make sure I'm there every single time, but it's because she loves the family of God. She loves people and she wants to be committed to his mission. 
One of the, th- the other things I loved about her, I love about her, is the fact that she'll go anywhere and watch her grandkids. She'll go anywhere. At, I mean, in a couple of weeks, she's flying to Colorado to watch two of my nieces. I wouldn't watch those two nieces if they lived in my basement, you know. But she's going all the way to Colorado to watch them for a whole week while my brother and his wife are out of town. I think they're going to California. But that's why my parents have always been. They'll drive anywhere just to see their kids. If I was playing anywhere when I lived out of state, if I came home or if I was playing anywhere within about a 16-hour drive, man, they're going to jump in the car because they love family. Back in the fall, we moved from Locust Grove to McDonough, and uh, we were staying in, in their home for about five weeks. And I saw this verse on the wall. And so all those things I love about my mom, and you're like, man, can we just, can we just get to Jesus, get to the Bible? We will. Um, but here's what I saw on her wall. Of all those things I love and some of those things I've had to grow to love about her, here's what I saw on her wall. And it was First John, sorry, it was Third John, verse number four. And I remember this because I woke up every single morning and I, and I saw it on her wall. But, but here's what's on her wall. It says this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so for all of the things that she wants to go right, in all of the ways that she's invested in our lives, in terms of music or time or sports or, or training in all these different ways, teaching me how to make desserts. That's, that's all she ever told me was how to make desserts. So that's what I do all the time. In all these different ways, her greatest wish for me, she would have taken all those things and thrown them away if she knew that I was walking in the truth. That is her greatest joy. And it's because of her faithfulness that I am here this morning in the faith. And so this morning, maybe you're like, yeah, I, don't, I don't have that testimony. That's, a, that's, a, that's okay. I just want to encourage the moms who are here this morning that even the small things, me and my wife, we've been talking about this, especially this week. And it's like, man, how do we, um, how do we become better parents? How do we, even last night, I ordered about a half a dozen books on Amazon just on parenting because of you, Axel. I'm just kidding. It's because of your brother. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's back in kids' church. We won't tell him. He knows. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, we want to be better parents. But can I tell you, whatever you invest your time in, may your greatest joy be that your kids are walking in the truth. Hebrews 11, 1, it says this, and this is what she's imparted to me. Now, by the grace of God, she's been a faithful woman. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it is, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, faith is this, is taking the things that we know to be true in the past, and we're holding on to those things, and we're looking forward to the things of the future, and we're saying we're living in this already not yet. Be a faithful mom, a parent. Guys, marry a faithful woman. Encourage your wife to be a faithful lady who is going to lay hold of the truths of the things in the past and look forward to the things that are coming. 
And everything that we're experiencing in this world is going to be brought to nothing in light of eternity. Point your kids to eternity. That, that's, that's why I'm here this morning. If, if all else fails, if I never play another note of music, and some of you are like, maybe, uh, maybe you should focus on music instead of preaching. That's like in 30 minutes you can tell me that's, that's okay. But if I never bake anything else, she is going to be happy that I am faithful to the word of God. That has been her goal. May that be the goal for our children. There are also some in this room, I want to acknowledge this. There are some in this room, I know the past couple of years have been hard, and I've, um, I've gone to some of y'all's mom's funerals. These years have been tough. And so this morning, there are those who are grieving their mothers who are not here anymore. There are some in this room who, your moms, and you've, you're grieving the, the loss of a child. There are some ladies here this morning who are grieving the fact that they can't be a mom or that they were a mom and they're not anymore. Maybe there are some in this room who are grieving the fact that there's some sort of incredible regret of something you've done as a mom in the, in the past. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus sees you? Jesus sees you. He knows you. And he invites you in to himself. The father understands grief. The son experienced sorrow. The Holy Spirit was sent as our comforter. So don't run back to the memory of what things used to be. Romans chapter 8, it says that the Father is working all things out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So when you hold that regret, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Instead of running back to that and feeling the shame of that decision or that choice, can you run to Jesus? He sees you. You are forgiven you are accepted, even though you can't change the past. Run to Jesus. His arms are wide open. Look to the cross. May that be our comfort and our peace this morning. Amen? So we are in Luke chapter 17. And as we talk about true faith, I want us to see five things from this passage I'm thankful for my mom. I'm thankful for you ladies. I'm thankful that y'all want to invest in your children. That's my prayer for you. I was even praying that for y'all this morning, that my faith would be increased and that your faith would be increased. So this morning, we're going to look at what true faith is, laying hold of what we know to be true in the past, like we saw in Hebrews 11, looking forward to the future, laying hold of what we know to be true, and allowing those things to affect our lives today. So the first thing that we see here in these first two verses in Luke chapter 17 is that true faith fights against, it escapes from, and it finds victory over sin. Luke chapter 17, Caleb just read it, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And while this passage may seem kind of random, the best way that we can kind of classify some of these things is that this is a collection of Proverbs. 
as Jesus, we don't have a, a perfect flow. We know that Jesus is heading to the cross, and we'll talk about that in just a second. We know that he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is probably the last several months of his life. But we don't know exactly when or why or how these conversations happen. So some of these things seem kind of random. But this is what Luke, this historian and this doctor did. He gathered these teachings of Jesus. He said, I'm going to file these away in this order. So the, the context here is, is sort of strange for us, but that's okay. The truth is still here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, temptations to sin are sure to come. Can I get an Amen. But woe to the one through whom they come. So, so first we see in verse number one, he says these temptations. That word temptation there is scandala. Everybody say scandala. That's where we get the word scandal. It means to trip up. It, means, uh, it literally means a stumbling block or it's a lure or it's a piece of bait. It has the potential to ruin. James talks about that in chapter one. There's this, uh, uh, this draw that's within us to sin. It's a fact of life. But there's also these outside influences. So sin is all around us. We cannot escape it. But friend, be reminded that temptation itself is not sin. True faith fights against. It fights against sin. Jesus said temptations are sure to come. We already saw that Jesus was tempted and he never sinned. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he found victory over sin. And on the cross, he finds victory for us. So in the midst of the most terrible temptation, day after day, hour after hour, while you're awake, while you're asleep, while you're at home by yourself, while you're at work, even while you're talking to someone on the phone, your wife, you're sitting there, even right now, you're like, man, I wish I was doing that. God, my heart is being drawn here. Friend, fight against that. Find victory over that temptation. But that is what he says here. In verse number two. Oh, sorry, we'll go back to verse number one. But woe to the one through whom they come. So it's not just the fact that you are being tempted, but woe to you who is bringing temptation to others. In other words, don't be an agent of the devil. You're like, whoa, this got serious real quick. Be on guard that you are not an agent of the devil. Verse number two, he says, he, he calls these people, he says um, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. This, this word right here, this phrase, little ones, we don't exactly know what that means. It could mean either little kids, and we see that in Matthew chapter 18, the beginning of the chapter there, I believe. He says, he, he calls a little child to himself, and he says basically the same thing. So he could be talking about little kids, literally uh, children, or he could be talking about those who are young in the faith. He says, whatever, don't cause anyone to sin. Don't be an agent of the devil. He says, if so, the beginning of verse number two right here, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, in an, in an agrarian society, mainly a society that had agriculture as its uh, primary uh, GDP, they would understand this illustration of a millstone. So this is a millstone here. So what they would do is there's actually a stone on the bottom there. They would pour grain in the top of this millstone. The grain would fall, and they would have to get an oxen to turn this top stone. As the, as the oxen turned it, it would take the grain, it would grind it, so then they could use it for bread, uh, for cooking with. Now, this is not an easy task. They would take oxen to do this. Sometimes they would take a whole group of men. If you remember in Judges chapter 16, Samson, the man of strength, 
when they took his, his sight from him, they made him push this millstone around. Remember that? So this is not an easy task. So Jesus says, it's better for you to take this millstone, which none of us could move. It would take a, a whole heap of us to move this thing, turn it around. He said, it's better that you would, that you would take this millstone, tie it around your neck, take a chain around your neck, take a chain around this millstone, and go out to the edge of the ocean over a cliff, and that millstone be thrown into the water. At that moment, there is no chance that you're coming back up for air. He says, it would be better that you perish than, to, than for you to lead someone else in sin, than to be an agent of the devil. Being drowned by a millstone is bad. But experiencing the condemnation of God as an agent of the devil is far worse. So be careful for yourself. Be careful where you are leading others. What a Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> In these next two verses, we see this, that true faith provides courage to rebuke and readiness to forgive. Verse number three, he says, pay attention. Pay attention. In other words, he's saying, be on guard. Pay attention. Watch out. Look out. For us in our culture, we are inundated with the schemes, with the temptations of this world. Just consider what is on commercials, what our media throws at us. Just, just imagine for a moment the, the sexualized nature of our society, of greed, of envy. You need more. You need to eat more gluttony. He's saying here, watch out. Pay attention to whom? To yourselves. He doesn't say to yourself. He says, you as a community of believers, pay attention to yourselves because the enemy is not here in this room. And so often the church, in the church, we find ourselves fighting against each other. Man, can you believe what that person, they listen to that preacher. They listen to that podcast. I'm more right than they are. Can you believe what they wore? Can you believe, can you believe that? Can you believe, that person believes that? I had somebody last week say, man, I, that, per, that person's a heretic. And I'm like, can you help me, help me with that? Tell me what they believe that's heretical. Well, I don't know, but somebody told me they were. <laughs> Literally. I said, that's really interesting. <laughs> Jesus says, watch out for yourselves. We have a common enemy, and it's not us. Watch out. Pay attention to yourselves. Our, our mission as a church, David read it this morning, but we exist to equip the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us, what? Transformed. Transformed. That is our role. That is our responsibility together as a family of Jesus Christ. When there is holiness in us as individuals, there will be unity in us as a community. So may we be pursuing holiness. Notice what Jesus says here next. He tells us how to do that. First, he says, pay attention. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice who Jesus is talking to here. He's not talking to us as theologians and philosophers to say, okay, well, let me, uh, what, what's the line here? He said, no, no, your responsibility as my disciple is to forgive. That's your responsibility. Yeah, but Jesus, but what else? It doesn't matter. You forgive. You worry about forgiving. You worry about yourself. You worry about your holiness. Y'all worry about your unity. 
He says here, there's, there's, there's two options. The first one, if, if your brother sins, he says to rebuke, which means to confront sin, to disclose the wrong that you see in someone else's life in love and humility. Ah, yeah, yeah, but I'm more, I'm more of a truth than a love guy. Sounds like you're more of a Pharisee than a Jesus guy to me. In love and humility, we confront. We don't gossip about this person. We don't avoid him or her. We confront them if we see sin in their lives. For the sake of unity, we rebuke. Then secondly, he says, if he repents, then forgive him. In other words, we let go of our right to judgment, to resentment, of anger, of control, of preferences. And instead of those, we offer pardon. We say, your slate is wiped clean. I'm going to offer you forgiveness. Who is that costing someone something? It's costing me something to offer you forgiveness. My, my question for us this morning, I struggle with forgiveness. I want to hang on to things. I, I can sometimes be a really good historian. There, there are some days, there are some weeks, I'll go five or six, seven days, and remember something somebody said to me years ago. And those those. Those simple phrases, those words, they haunt me and they drive me to bitterness. But does Jesus know what it feels like to be sinned against? Does Jesus know what it feels like to be lied about, to be abused, for his reputation to be destroyed? And who did that? We did. In our sin, we do that every single day. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. He extends his hands. And he says to us, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It's true that hurt people hurt people. But Jesus says that forgiven people forgive people. So in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of possibly even paying the price for the other person who sinned against you, in the midst of that forgiveness, you're like, man, this really hurts. Can I encourage you to look to Jesus? He understands your pain. He understands your suffering. He understands forgiveness, even more than you do, because we as sinners are commanded to forgive, and he was sinless, and he still forgives us. Amen? So may we have an ongoing posture, a readiness to forgive we need to deal with sinners. We need to deal with each other. We need to deal with sin in the same way that a doctor deals with sick people. And, and I need that from y'all as much as, I mean, this morning after, after run through, Shannon walked up to me and she said, hey, I, I want to confront some things that you just said. I said, all right, man, that stinks. <laughs> that, that's tough to hear. I need to hear those things. And I'm thankful that she tells me those things. Most, I'm, sometimes I need to be more thankful that she tells me those things. <laughs> But we need to hear these things. But we need to treat sinners like a doctor treats a sick patient. That's who Jesus came to heal. You don't go to the doctor two, three, four, five times, six, and on the sixth time, the doctor says, how many times are you going to come see me? You're sick again? I'm done with you. What does he do? He says, yeah, you're still messed up. There's still healing available. There's still a cure available. For us, we point others to Jesus. The third thing we see here 
is that true faith is not based on its quantity, but on its object. Not on its, not how much faith you have. Verses five and six, and this is a, oh, these are interesting verses. The apostle said to Jesus, can I just say this real quick in, in these two verses? I actually think that verses one through four lead into five and six. So the context of verses five and six about growing in faith has to do with forgiveness. The apostles say, in light of Jesus saying, hey, y'all need to forgive seven times over and over, seven times a day over and over, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they're saying, we don't know how to do that. We need to have more faith. And Jesus says, yes, true faith looks like this. It looks like forgiving over and over. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, real small, these are mustard seeds, real small, then you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus says, you don't need a, a giant. What's the, the biggest seed that we can think of that's enormous? He says, no, just a, a small amount of faith, just the smallest bit of clinging to this object of Christ. He says, cling to Jesus with everything that you have. Cast yourself on his power. Even with the smallest amount of faith, rest on his strength. True faith relies on his adequacy, not how much faith you may have. If you notice in verse number six, I think he's speaking here in hyperbole. He says, even with the tiniest faith, hyperbole is, it's raining cats and dogs. You ever seen that? No, it's hyperbole. It's, man, it's raining a lot. It feels like cats and dogs are coming down. Man, my, my feet are killing me. You ever say that? Are they really? Like, are they out there? Like, are they hunting you? Does have, do they have knives in their toes? Like, is there, like, is they're looking up at you, I'm gonna get you one day. no. He's speaking here in hyperbole. He says, if your faith was infinitesimally small, then you'd be able to forgive. If with a little faith you can move a tree to the ocean, then even smaller faith is required for you to forgive. He says, don't, don't wait until a later point to forgive. Don't wait until your faith increases to be obedient. He says, even with a tiny little faith, forgive. Be obedient. How has a holy God pursued your heart? Think about that for a minute. So get out of this. Okay, here's what I have to do. Let me forgive. Okay, let me, let me wrestle with the, um, with the syntax and the linguistics of this passage. How has a holy God pursued your heart? How has he done that? How has he extended mercy in light of your sinful rebellion? Friend, if you are unwilling to forgive... You are placing yourself in the seat of God. What you're saying is that God is unable or unwilling to forgive, so neither will I. That is a place, friend, where you need more faith. The Father offers forgiveness through the sacrifice of the Son, His sacrifice was sufficient. It's sufficient for you, and it's sufficient for them. Increase our faith. The fourth thing that we see in these next set of verses, Jesus here tells a story about a master coming home to his servants, and the master says, what am I going to do, fix food for you? No, 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 you, you fix food for me. And the servants are like, well, obviously. In verse number 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. 
And in the church, we want to be recognized, rewarded. We want to have these, these plaques. We want to get a gold star for everything that we do. And the same is true in the way that we want to earn favor in the kingdom. You're like, God, yeah, but I, I went to church for 30 years and I never missed a Sunday. Yeah, but look, I was even a deacon or I was a pastor. I was on stage or I did this or I served and people loved me. I did all these wonderful things. Look at all this money that I gave. Look at how much people love. I'm so much better than these people. Jesus here is saying, no, no, no. That's what you as a servant are supposed to do. What else were you going to do? Not serve me? Not be faithful? You don't go, I, I, was, uh, I flew to South Dakota uh, last weekend. I was there doing the Lord's work <laughs> of ministering to some brothers as we shot turkeys and prairie dogs. And trying to keep the population down for the turkeys, trying to feed my family. Um, so I did bring the meat back. We're going to smoke it with a big green egg, bless God. And so I'll, and I'll pray for y'all while I'm doing that, okay? So this, this is ministry. Uh, I didn't get off the plane when I arrived back in Atlanta and turned to the plane and say, thank you, plane. I am grateful to you, left wing, for making sure the little panels in the back were flapping up and down at just the right angle. Thank you, right wing, for, doing what, for, for making sure everything was just perfectly, for the most part, perfectly balanced on my flight. Thank you, Mr. Pilot. I really appreciate everything that you did. Thank you so much for sacrificing your time and coming here and pushing all these knobs and pulling the levers and whatever y'all are. I don't, I don't know anything about flying planes. I, di I didn't look at, at the bottom. And say, thank you, thank you, bottom of the plane for holding our luggage. Thank you, wheels. for. I didn't do any of those things. And y'all don't do that stuff either. Nobody got out of your car this morning and said, thank you, car, for getting me. Now, some of y'all are like, it was real close. <laughs> it was real dicey. I've seen some of y'all's cars. <laughs> Maybe you need to thank your car. <laughs> you don't do that because that's what the car is supposed to do. That's what the plane was designed to do. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And we as servants, or maybe even a better translation of this word, we don't like to talk about this, which is, which is understandable. The word there is doulos, which means slave, which means you're owned by somebody. In the same way that we wouldn't look at our plane or a car and say, man, thank you so much. No, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Jesus is saying, you as servants, live for me, sacrifice for me. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you are supposed to live. I'm not giving you credit for what I commanded you to do. Your credit is found on the cross. You're justified. You're wiped clean. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's why Rock of Ages, the old hymn, it says, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. You know what we bring to the table in terms of salvation? All we bring is our shame, our guilt, our regret, our sinfulness, our brokenness. That's what we bring as unworthy servants. But out of the character of Christ, out of his finished work, he pours into our empty hands his righteousness. So when we stand before God the Father, as we've come empty-handed, we don't show up empty-handed. We show up with the righteousness of Christ. And from his righteousness, we have life. We have hope. We're able to love each other, and we're able to offer forgiveness. The last thing that we see here is that true faith cries out for mercy and responds to salvation with unending gratitude. 
So we see here in verse number 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Again, this is the third time that we've seen on his way to Jerusalem. We saw it in chapter 9. We saw it in chapter 13. It says he's going between Samaria and Galilee. Now, there was this hostility between Jews, of which Jesus was one, and Samaritans. And so normally they wouldn't take this route. They would take the longer way around because they wanted to avoid the Samaritans. But what's Jesus doing? He's passing right through the middle because he's God and he cares for people. He's not all about his people, the Jews. He's all about the people that he's created. Amen? So he goes right through there. In verse number 12, he says, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. So leprosy was terrible. And in different ways, we've taken these skin conditions, and, and some folks have classified them just under leprosy. But most of the time, leprosy is this. It would begin with a, a pinkish kind of blotch on your face, and then it would spread to your body. And as it spread, you would begin uh, developing these tumorous growths on your body. And you begin getting in pain, and, and your limbs began shutting down, and they, were, they would slowly become absorbed into your body. Your limbs would, would break down. You couldn't feel them. It was a terrible condition. Your body was covered uh, with these open sores, and you would stink terribly because of the pus that was coming out of them. You're like, yo, 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 that's enough. That's good. We get it. Your body would literally kill itself because it couldn't feel anything. It was a nerve condition. So he says here to these lepers, they're sitting here crying out for him. It, normally what a leper would cry is the word unclean because the law required them to social distance. You're like, oh, we understand what this means now. I couldn't have preached this sermon three years ago. Now we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And not just six feet. But we're talking about dozens of feet. They would have their own villages there within a village. And oftentimes they would die because nobody would be feeding. Nobody cared about the lepers. They were, just, they were outcasts. It was, it was a lifelong quarantine. Some of y'all were going nuts after like four days a couple years ago. This was lifelong quarantine with other lepers. It was terrible. As, as they, if they went anywhere, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. And people would run away. Outcast, terrible, a terrible existence. And we see here in verse number 13, and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, how, how did the lepers know who Jesus was? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the news. But they knew who he was. They had heard this is a man who is raising the dead back to life, who is making the blind to see, making the mute to speak, making the deaf to hear. Can you feel the excitement here? What a terrible existence. Did they say, Jesus, there he is. Guys, look, there's Jesus right there. He's, he's walking down the road. That's hope. That's healing. Look at that. He's, we might have a chance. And on his way to the most important task in human history, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus stops and looks at and talks to, and speaks to, and has mercy on these nameless lepers that nobody else wanted around. Jesus always answers the cry for mercy. And you want to know who cries out for mercy? It's not the most religious people. It's the social rejects, the outcasts, the needy. Verse number 14 when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. 
And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, going and showing yourself to the priest, the priest could declare you clean. He would say, yeah, yeah, your leprosy is gone. At the moment that you're cleansed, you can go back and embrace your kids. You can go back and be with your wife. Life is normal. You can worship publicly. You can gather with people. You can go to the market. You're made clean. Nobody else is going to look at you like you're crazy. Notice in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, this next sentence is important. Now, he was a Samaritan. I think the other nine were probably Israelites. I think they were probably Jews. I don't have any historical way of verifying that. But why did Luke decide to put, now he was a Samaritan? Because he's different. He's different. The Samaritan comes back and he offers thanks. He's more taken with the healer than he is the healing. All 10 of them, as they're walking down the road, they still have leprosy, and they begin to be healed as they're walking. That's what it says. That's wild. I'd probably be the same way. I can't wait to get to the priest. I can't wait to get back to life as normal. I can't wait to be pronounced clean. I can't wait to see my wife. I can't wait to see my kids. I can't wait to get back to my job. I can't wait for these things. People love the benefits of Jesus without loving intimate relationship with him. We love the benefits that Jesus provides but we're okay with a distant relationship with Jesus. Father's Day is next month. Let me tell you what the lowest attending Sunday of the year is nationally, national statistic, Father's Day. You want to know why? Because dads would rather do anything else rather than gather with the people of God. So when you go hang out with your dad, he's like, oh, yeah, you know what? I've, I've got a list of things that I'd rather do. Can you come honor me as my dad? Mother's Day is like number three most attended Sunday of, of the year after Easter and Christmas. The third one is Mother's Day. What does that say about our families? What does that say about us dads? About me? What am I pointing my kids to? The benefits of Jesus or a relationship with Jesus? Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, we're not... 10 cleansed? Pretty sure Jesus knew this one. He's healing leopards. Where are the nine? Verse 18. And he's, uh, sorry, verse 18. And no one, was no one found to return and give thanks to God, praise to God, except this foreigner? Except this one who's not even part of us? Verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is, this is interesting here. It says, has made you well. You're like, wait, wait, I thought he was already made well. If you look right there at, beside the very end of that verse, if you have an ESV like I do, there's a little number right there, and it's the number nine. Okay, so this is really helpful. This is a good little Bible study tip. If you ever see, most of us just avoid those things. We're like, yeah, I'm barely reading the Bible. I don't need to read more of it. But if you look at the bottom right there, that little number nine, it corresponds at the bottom of your page if you have that, and it literally means, or has saved you. So we see this and we're like, oh, and I think the, the, the translators are trying to say, yeah, he was made well and he's made well. But literally means he was made well physically and his faith has healed him and made him well spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying. He was already made well physically. 
It didn't require anything. But he came back praising God, acknowledging God as powerful, acknowledging what he had done, acknowledging what he promised to do. Now notice the irony here. The Jews, the ones who should have known most about Jesus, they took the healing for granted. But this one foreigner, he returns and gives thanks. He acknowledges Jesus Christ as the son of all. That's the point of this passage. Don't look to what Jesus provides. True faith looks to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, this Samaritan, he had faith, and he was literally saved. He was cleansed from a far more terrible disease than leprosy. He was cleansed from sin. And if you notice here, this rise and go in your way, your faith has saved you. It has made you well. This benediction of sorts, this, this declaration it's never spoken of in the Gospels, in the whole Scripture. It's never spoken over a Pharisee. It's never spoken over a religious person. It's only spoken of over outsiders, over those who are needy, over those who are unclean, over those foreigners, because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. So for many of us, we want to be, man, as religious as possible. And I have all the answers. And if I can just get everything in order, and if I can just complete my, my spiritual task list, then Jesus is going to look at me and be pleased with me. Can I tell you this morning? I doubt there is one of us in here who is a Jew. We're not. Therefore, we are all outsiders. Let us not forget the fact that even though Jesus came to redeem his people, he also came to redeem outsiders like us. That is a, this right here is a beautiful picture for us of the mercy and the grace of God. Lest we take for granted his saving power, lest we think that we can earn anything from him, he reached down to us first. It's because of his character, not because of us, that we are able to obey, able to forgive because we were first thought of, chosen, predestined, Ephesians chapter 1. This is really good news for us in our identity. What in your life moves you to a spiritual or a relational place of a leper? So consider the life of a leper. Outcast, broken, nasty, ugly, you don't want to be around people. They look at you with judgmental eyes. What moves you to that place in relationships? What moves your spirit to that place? Maybe it's a particular sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's the fact that you were never enough for one of your parents. Maybe you experience some sort of abuse from someone in your family. Maybe it's fear. What moves you to that place of being a spiritual or a relational leper? For all of us, our number one fear is being exposed. Our fear is in feeling the shame and the condemnation of other people. Because if I'm exposed, you're going to look at me and, oh, man, you're messed up. You're jacked up. Our number one fear is being unacceptable. The enemy wants you walking around heralding, crying out your uncleanness. 
He wants you living in the midst of that filth and that shame and that pus and that stink, and he wants you walking around unclean. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy of community. I'm unworthy. I shouldn't be here. But friend, Jesus forgives you. Jesus, because of his finished work, makes you clean. And that should lead our hearts to praise and to thanksgiving. Because Jesus wasn't just going to Jerusalem to provide for us a better physical life. Jesus was heading to Jerusalem so that he could meet every spiritual need for us. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. He was exposed so that we could be covered. Jesus was shamed so that we could be forgiven. He was broken so that we could be made whole. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. That's transforming power. That's true faith, is looking at what he has done and clinging to that, even this morning if your faith is the size of a mustard seed. Falling upon the power and the work of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says that you are not a people, speaking to folks like us, but you have been made a people. So the gospel's declaration to foreigners, to sinners, to the needy, to the unclean, is come to the feet of Jesus and cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. My prayer for us as a body is that we would have true faith that it would manifest itself in making much of Jesus Christ. May we bring folks under the cross, under this new identity that we've been given because of Jesus Christ. Here in this room, in this body, but also those outside, those who are looking for hope, looking for meaning, looking for significance. May we bring them under and say, man, look at Jesus. There's mercy. Cry out to him. You don't have to cry out unclean anymore. You can cry out for his mercy. 